You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Holy Word to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're dipping our toe in this book this morning on this significant day in the life of Redeemer Church to help us remember what is central, what is important, why we exist to begin with. You can turn in your uh, pew Bibles to page 952. We're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Churches today are confused about what their job is. Just about every church website you go to describes a different way that church is trying to influence the culture, to build stronger families, to alleviate personal brokenness, to help you get your life back in order, even to live your best life now. But scripture shows us there is something else that is at the center of the church's mission. We place our confidence in the cross of Christ because that message is what God has promised to bless. We place our confidence both as the church, as an institution, and as the people of God in the cross of Christ because that message is what God has promised to bless. That is what Paul is telling us this morning, and we want to look at this in two movements. Paul goes through two movements as he bears this out. First, a foolish message. Second, a foolish people. Let's consider a foolish, foolish message, verses 18 through 25. 
And before we even get to the, the message, we have to take a step back and get to the mission of the church. What is the church called to do? Paul gives us a clear instruction in this passage. It's consistent with all of scripture, what Christ gave the church in the Great Commission. Paul says, the mission of the church is to preach for salvation. That's it, to preach for salvation, to declare something, to herald something, to proclaim something, to say something with authority that leads to salvation. That's the mission of the church. We are here to declare what God has said. We're here to declare, as we'll see in a moment, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to do. That is what the church is called to do. That is what the people of God gather to hear, preaching. Yes, it is foolish. Yes, there are a thousand other things that are more entertaining, more exciting, but Paul says, yes, it might look foolish, might look like folly, but this is what we gather to do. Yes, we preach, but what is the message of that preaching, this foolish message? What is it? Paul states it in several ways, but the essence is this in verse 22. The essence of the message to be proclaimed is Christ crucified. Or as he says to begin the passage in verse 18, it is the word of the cross. Or as he says in chapter two, verse two, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the message, Christ and him crucified. The word of the cross. And of course, there's so much packed into these statements. But at the center of, the, center of it is this. We proclaim the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus. This is the center of what we proclaim. It's not clearly the fact, just not merely the facts that Jesus died. Yes, he died. But what does that mean? It means that God has offered salvation to all who believe. So come to this Jesus who has died for sinners. Proclaiming the cross reveals our ultimate problem. It implies that we have an ultimate problem. And it is our sin. Our sin that has estranged us from God. It has alienated us from our creator, but it leads to condemnation for eternity. That is your biggest problem. It's not here and now, but it's for eternity. And the cross of Christ comes in the midst of this problem. Your biggest problem is not whether you're going to get a good grade. It's not if you're going to please your boss. It's not if your spouse is going to make that change so it really make your life a lot easier. Your biggest problem is not that your parents would stop bickering or if you would ever meet that somebody you're waiting for. Not if you will get into the right school. Not that all your hard work would be acknowledged. That's not your biggest problem in life. It's not that you need to be a little bit better, you need to try a little harder and do a little bit more good in the world. Those things are fine as far as they go, but that is not your biggest problem. Your problem is you stand condemned before a holy and righteous and eternal God. But we preach Christ crucified. This is the remedy. This is God's appointed solution because we can do nothing to overcome the problem. God has provided his eternally begotten son who took upon himself human flesh 
willingly suffering and dying on behalf of his people. This is Christ crucified. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep, he says. This is what we make known. This is what we proclaim because this changes eternity for those who come to him. And in his death, sin was removed from his people. And in his later resurrection, his righteousness and acceptability of his sacrifice was confirmed. The cross of Christ is the imminent, the greatest example of God's love. And it is God's grace for his people. It's all done for you. We preach the cross. We don't preach what you need to do better, how you need to try harder. We preach the cross. It has been done. It is finished, Jesus declared. There's nothing remaining for you to do, except as our membership vows say, as the confession says, to receive this crucified king, to rest upon him alone for salvation. As the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, the Old Testament people of God, Jesus said, so must the Son of God be lifted up that all who look to him might be saved. This is grace. And this is the faith that is called, that we are called to put in Christ. Now there's two responses to this message, this central message we proclaim, Christ and him crucified. Two responses that Paul demonstrates right out of the gate in verse 18. Because the word of God is active. The gospel, the message of Christ crucified is not something that leaves us where we are. God has promised by his spirit to be working through this message. And when we hear it, we are not left in the same place. There's two things that can happen to you when you hear Christ crucified. One is the power of God to those who are being saved. When you hear the gospel and respond in faith, this is God working. In fact, the very faith that you have to put in Christ is God working in you. It is the the power of the gospel, Christ crucified, that gives us any power for the Christian life to live in any way that glorifies him. It's the gospel that has power. Paul writes in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As we read earlier in in Colossians 1, him we proclaim. Jesus Christ we proclaim because it is God's power to salvation. Nothing else can save except the gospel, this declaration that it is done. Look to the one who's on the cross the one who has died for us. Look to him. And this is the power of God. When you look to him, that is the power of God at work in you. God is active in the proclamation of his word. But the second response is this. It is folly to those who are perishing. It is considered to be foolish. It is ridiculed. It is mocked. He says, The Jews, they want signs. They want demonstrations of great power. But the gospel is a stumbling block because there's nothing of power. This is the man who's died. This flies in the face of everything the world wants. 
It's a stumbling block to the Jews. And then on the other hand, we have the Gentiles who want wisdom, who want philosophy, who are deep thinkers, who want some kind of sense of how the world works on a deep elementary level. No, to them, the gospel's folly. Really, you're talking about a man who died on a tree. That's foolishness. That's folly. This makes no sense. But these are the two answers, the the two responses to the gospel. You understand, embrace it. it It's the power of God at work in you. Or you consider it foolishness. You consider it a stumbling block. So how do you respond this day? Do you see Jesus Christ lifted up? Say, that is my savior. Do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation? Let's look to him. He's offered to all. Jesus Christ crucified is for all who come to him and believe. Oh, do not be, fool. do not be foolish by considering the cross folly. No, it is the wisdom of God The foolishness of God, if there's such a thing, it is wiser than the wisdom of the world. This is God's means for salvation. This is your only hope. Come to him to be reconciled to God and have eternal life with him. God uses this apparent foolishness to demonstrate his power. And for those who look to Christ, we need to be reminded of of this foolish message week in and week out because as we go out in the world, we're recalibrated. We're being catechized every day by everything we consume in the world to say, no, the gospel is folly. No, what's what's better are these other things the world has to offer. And we have to come back to this. This is why we don't ever move on from the gospel. This isn't the gateway into the church and then you forget about it. We come back over and over that Christ has died for us. By grace, you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. We need to hear that or else we will turn and say, no, what do I need to do for salvation? The world's messages will come into seeping into our minds. We'll begin to think this is folly and foolishness. We need to come back to this message. It is no foolishness. It is the wisdom of God. And as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must stick to this mission and this message. We must not veer off course. This is what we are called to do. If we're not doing this, we might as well go home. We're wasting our time. We're here to proclaim Christ. Not me, not how great we are, not how great you are, not what you need to do to be a little bit better to earn God's favor. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. We're about to have men come up here to be ordained and installed to the offices of service in the church, to serve Christ and his church, deacons and an elder. And it's easy for us, like C.S. Lewis's essay on the inner ring, It feels like there's this inner ring that that we all want to be a part of. And it feels like maybe these officers are some kind of inner ring and and we want to be a part of it just to be on the inside. These men who are coming to stand up here, who will stand before you to be your servants, are not part of some inner ring. They're not here because they want to feel like they are on the inside. They are here to be stewards of this mission and this message. There to make sure we are all on mission of proclaiming the gospel and seeing the fruit bear out in our lives. These men are servants of this mission and this message that Christ has given us. And we are all to hold us accountable. 
the preachers, the elders, the deacons, all the congregation is called to hold us accountable, make sure this is happening and nothing else. Christ and him crucified. The foolish message may it forever be proclaimed from the pulpit of Redeemer Church. Paul also shows us not just the foolish message, but the foolish people, verse 26 through 31. What is the fruit of this power of God? What does it look like? And he shows us it is the church, or as he calls it, foolish in the world. Paul says, look around the room. Look around, look, see who's here. Do we have athletes making millions of dollars every year in our group? Do we have politicians who are making waves in Columbus or in Washington, D.C.? Do we have social media influencers in our midst? Do we have the popular and the rich and the famous? No, he says, look, you're just normal people. That's all we are. Look around the room. We're normal people. There's nothing great about us. There's nothing wonderful about us. There's no reason that God would would draw us to him apart from somebody else. There's nothing inherent. There's no inherent reason. We're not a millionaire's club. We're not a club of powerful, influential people. In fact, many here are living paycheck to paycheck. We're concerned about our families. We're we're trying to just make ends meet. We care about doing a good job to honor our employers and to love our neighbors. Just doing the necessities. And there's nothing particularly attractive about us from a worldly perspective. Now, verse 26, Paul does say, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise. Yes, there are some Christians who are doing wonderful things and some Christians who may rise above and our God has used, are using them in the culture in different ways and we praise God for that. But that's the exception to the rule. That's not what we ought to expect. That's not who we are. We're normal people, just like Israel. As God reminded Israel, he said, why do you think I chose you? As we read earlier from Deuteronomy, why did I choose you? Why are you my people, Israel? Because you're strong and mighty and you have the best kings and the most wealth in the world. You're the fewest of all the peoples. You're the runt of the litter. You're the insignificant ones. That's why I've chosen you, that I might demonstrate my power through weaklings. And that's true of us as well. That God would demonstrate his power through weaklings. We, in God's economy, shame the strong. We shame the powerful people. We shame the Instagram influencers. We shame them. How? Why? What are we doing? This has eternity in mind. We will shame them as this ordinary, normal people who have nothing spectacular about them forever be in the presence of God. And those seeking after power in this world and nothing else will experience nothing but judgment and torment for eternity. They will be shamed forever and ever. Paul can't help but bring up Jesus again. Verse 30. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. What does he call him? Call call him to us. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The reason you are anything, the reason you will shame the strong one day is because of Jesus Christ. Not because you've got him from the gospel and you've made it work great from there. Because of Jesus Christ, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, it is all Christ. 
And so the big application from this is there is no boasting. There's no boasting among the people of God. There's no boasting in anything we have done. There's no boasting in our status before God, which is privileged beyond measure. It's not because of you. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're wonderful. It's because of God's sovereign love. He, he has set upon you from eternity past. There's no boasting. You can't look down on anybody else. What does Paul say? If there is any, any boast, boast in the Lord. What a great God we have. What a glorious God we have. That's who we boast in. We boast in the foolish message. We say, yes, it is foolish to the world, but I cling to the cross of Jesus Christ because without it, there's no hope. The grace and the mercy of God on display for us. And today, again, we do something foolish. Men will come up here and kneel and have their hands, have hands laid upon them. It's just silly, right? That look strange to the world. What are you doing? Yes, it looks foolish. But this is Christ exercising his authority over us. We are called by scripture to lay hands on men who are set apart for sacred office. And it's not because they're greater than anybody else in the room. It's not because they're super spiritual people and the rest of us aren't. Because we do believe, as you've recognized, God has gifted them in particular ways. We all have our gifts that we're serving the church in different ways. These men, have, these men have particular gifts to serve in these offices. It looks strange. It looks foolish to the world. We're simply following the command of Christ. And we rejoice not in these men who will stand before you. We rejoice not in the man who proclaims the gospel, but we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the Christ who has equipped them for their calling, the, the, the Christ who has saved you from your sins. That is where we boast. That is where we place our hope and our trust. What do you do with the cross of Christ? What do you do with this foolish message? Has it made you into a foolish person yet? I pray it will, if it hasn't already. It's a great book called Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. And the question is posed is this, what would it look like if Satan took over a town? If Satan took over Hudson, Ohio, what would that look like? And I read from Horton. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over a half century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia offered his own scenario from a sermon. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, where he was pastor, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with, tiny, with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. There's nothing more satanic than refusing to proclaim Christ crucified. Is this your hope? The Christ on a cross who has died for people who look to him? Oh, I pray it is. May you look to this Savior and receive eternal life this day.
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, may we be faithful to this message, to proclaim none other but Christ and him crucified. Oh, Father, may this proclamation, as you have promised, be wed with your spirit, that it would go forth with power, that many might come to the Savior. Oh, Lord, we are but beggars at the feast of God who have received such an incredible inheritance, and we rejoice in it. We boast in our great, our, our Savior who is filled with abundant grace. We rejoice in him this day. In his name we pray. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.